I would invite you this morning, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to the book of Colossians, the third chapter. In just a moment, we'll begin at verse 12. Over the last several weeks, we have been looking together at the book of Colossians. Today is our our last Sunday there, um, before we transition next week into some of the parables from Luke. I want to remind you just a little bit of where we've been. The book of Colossians was likely written by Paul while he was in prison to a church that he probably did not start, somebody else started, but he has heard much about. He writes this letter concerned about their level of maturity. He wants them to live what he describes as a life in Christ. But he's concerned that this life that is in Christ, that is beautiful and rich and lovely, but also challenging, that they are following some back into patterns that they entered into life with Christ in. Some have come and they've entered into forms of legalism, some into kind of forms of what we would describe today as kind of religious self-help movements. But he wants them to find their life in Christ. And, And so, so much of the early part of the letter celebrates what that life looks like and what the mature life in Christ looked like, looks like. And then last week, Pastor Jim took us into the third chapter. And if you have your Bible open, I just want to pay attention to a couple of words. The, the first word of chapter three is therefore. And I've said this to you before, you don't have to be a great biblical scholar to know every time you see the word therefore, you should stop and ask, what is it therefore? And so Paul has said, you have this life in Christ, and therefore, if you are raised with Christ, look for the things that are above where Christ is sitting at God's right side. Think about the things above, not things on earth. You died, and therefore put to death, in verse 5, put to death all of those yucky, bad, destructive parts of your life that had to do with immorality and corruption and lust and desire and greed and idolatry, etc. This morning, as we get to verse 12, we get another therefore. And so if you are in Christ and you have set aside the old life, now we get verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's choice, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with each other. And if someone has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other. As the Lord forgave you, so also forgive each other. And over all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you are called in one body, and be thankful, people. The word of Christ must live in you richly teach and warn each other with all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This morning, I want to take a few minutes and and as simply as I can, and I, I, I know that's sometimes a challenge for me, but, but as simply as I can, I, I want to take Colossians because as we've been studying it together and this idea of putting on the new creation, 
So much of what Paul has to say in Colossians, I think, resonates with the best of who we as a particular tradition or denomination are trying to be. And so I want to think about that with you this morning and and think about the absolute kind of best and and what is it that we are trying to lean into and, and allow Christ to do in us. If you go back to verse 12 for a moment, I I just want to talk about a word that's kind of bothersome at times. Verse 12 again, therefore, as God's choice, some of you have a translation like the NIV that says, as God's chosen ones. Sometimes that language can be problematic, and, and we kind of come by that problem honestly. A little over 500 years ago, uh, the church went through what's called the, the Great Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther and other reformers like John Calvin or Ulrich Zwingli, some folks led the church kind of into and out of medieval Catholicism. And the primary concern of those years was that in those days of medieval Catholicism, much of the common understanding of faith became really works-oriented. People were deeply concerned about their eternal destiny and And so a lot of the imagination was being shaped and by participation in various practices, perhaps even buying and selling of various of what what were called indulgences, um, worship at certain relics, acts of penance. And as Luther and others looked on, they began to realize so much of of the person's mentality or imagination of what it means to have the assurance of salvation is built upon how much have I done or how much have I given, how much work am I doing? Luther, in particular, shaped by a whole big sense of guilt, but also then deeply shaped by his reading of Romans and rightly an understanding of salvation by grace and faith alone, began to lean into that and began to to argue, no, we can't live in this works-related kind of faith. We have to go with grace and faith alone. And, And by the way, I think he was right about that. But part of the issue, as we look back, is that, no, no, hang with me here. The reformers may have overcooked that just a little. In this sense, for Luther, who was so worried about works and so leaning upon grace, If you were to ask Luther, then how do we respond to that grace? Or what do we do? For Luther, who's so weary and wary of works, there is nothing in a sense that we can do other than to receive that grace in the the languages irresistibly. Which led to a kind of interesting theological move. We got to words like chosen in the scripture. And for some, not all, but for some, we began to read it this way. It means then that God has chosen certain people to be saved, to be his children, and other people he has chosen not to. So I'll pick on these two in the front row. So God clearly has chosen Diane and clearly not chosen Brent. Like, <laughs> like this is... And if you were to ask Luther the question, why did God choose Diane and not Brent? There's no good reason. It's not because Diane did a whole bunch of great stuff, because if she did, that's works. And it's not because Brent did a bunch of bad stuff, because again, that would be works, right? And so we began to have this sense in Protestantism that some people got chosen, some people didn't, and 
that led to other kinds of dysfunctions because now we got, how do we know Diane's chosen and not Brent? I don't have time for all that this morning. <laughs> but some other folks came along and said, I don't, we don't have a problem with this whole grace thing, but we do have a real problem with this idea that God sort of arbitrarily gives grace to some and others. And perhaps the problem is that we're reading this whole language of chosen incorrectly. It's not that God has chosen some for salvation and others for destruction. It's that when the, especially the Old Testament language of election or being chosen gets used, it's not that God has somehow chosen these people or this nation and not this nation or this person and not that person for salvation or destruction, but has chosen this person uniquely to be then the instrument of revelation and actually the instrument through which the other person comes to know salvation. Are you with me? And so it's not that God chose Israel and he hated all the other nations, but Israel understands itself as kind of the last nation you would pick if you were going to pick a nation. But God surprisingly, like he picked David or like he picked Jacob or like he picked one of the other younger siblings, God chose Israel to be the instrument through which God would reveal God's self to the world. Are you with me? And so when Paul writes here in Colossians to the Colossians who are the chosen ones, he's not saying God picked you and not this other group of people, but he's saying, here's what I can't believe. Me, Paul, a person raised as a Jewish person, knowing I'm part of the chosen, here's what I can't believe. Now he's chosen you Gentiles. You're in. Are you with me? And so I I just want to say about that word, we are a people who deeply believe in a, a doctrine called provenient grace. It's a fancy word that just means this. Grace is everywhere. Grace is there before you even know it. But if you want to know, does God want you to be his child? The answer is absolutely yes. And God has already made the first move in grace to make that possible for you to respond to God. But not only does Paul write to those who are chosen, but then the next word is important. Those who are holy. Those who are holy. Paul invites the Colossians to be in Christ. But to be in Christ is not just an assurance that someday when they die, they get to be part of that new creation or get to live in heaven. But to be in Christ is to be transformed, to be changed, to be a people who are now formed to be a holy people in the world. And part of what that holiness means, as Jim shared with us last week in that text, part of what that means is to be holy means we've got to take off those parts or even allow, maybe better to say, allow Christ to take off those parts of our lives that are broken and fragmented and keep us from living into that life that mar the image of God in us. Are you with me? And so there's a lot of stuff, Paul says, that you had to take off. In fact, the image here, as we've talked about before, I think the image Paul has in his mind is the image of baptism. That when we walk into the water in the early traditions, folks would take their clothes off as a symbol of leaving all of that stuff behind and enter into the water. But here's the other part that this text really emphasizes. When you come out of the water, you just don't stand there in your birthday suit. 
But the church puts on this new white robe around you. It's not just taking off something. It's, it's putting on compassion and gentleness and righteousness. It's putting on all of this new life in Christ. Are you with me? Can I tell you a secret this morning? Don't tell anybody. So we have this little black book. Um, it's called the Manual of the Church of the Nazarene. It's not unusual for denominations to have books of order. This is the Church of the Nazarene's book of order. We call it the Manual. This is our most recent one. The dates are 2017 to 2021. It's 2022 now, which means we're free, baby. We can do whatever we want to. <laughs> Woo! Glory! Uh, no, that's not what that means. Oh, because of COVID, we were supposed to meet in 2021. We're going to meet next summer. And every four years, church gets together, fights about all this stuff. And, and the first manual was actually very thin. This one is not. Every time we get together, we seem to find ways to make this a little bigger than it was before. But, but here's the secret. Don't tell anybody. For the last 10 years, I've been on a committee that, that kind of looks at one particular portion of the manual, a portion called the Covenant of Christian Conduct. And a few years ago, we looked at a section of it on, on sexuality and on marriage. And that's important. Paul, part of putting to death the old life is recognizing our bodies matter. It's not just our spirits that matter. It's our whole body. And so how we live that out really does matter. But the last six years, I've been on the committee again, and we've been looking at the first part of it, which is on the Christian life. And as we were looking at it, and we were asked to kind of look at some language and parts of it, we kind of had a meeting at the beginning and said, hey, and I said, you know, when we looked at the other one, we just decided to blow the old one up and start over. You want to do that now? And we voted unanimously, yeah, let's just blow it up. <laughs> and so we're, I'm actually really excited next summer to bring a, a kind of new statement on the Christian life uh, to General Assembly. We'll see how it goes. But can I tell you, this is the secret part, the reason why, primarily why we tried to blow it up. It's not that this is a bad statement, it's pretty good. But after it does a kind of theology of what it means to be in Christ, we list in there six things that we're supposed to give up. And please don't misunderstand me. All six of them are things we should give up. But when it gets to the sixth thing that we're supposed to give up, it just moves on to the next section. And so I know I just complained about the manual getting bigger, but I'm part of a team that's going to add about six more pages to it next year. But the six more pages are not the things we're supposed to give up, but the things we're supposed to put on. Because part of who we are as the people who are holy are not just the people who have a whole list of the don'ts that we don't. And again, I don't have a problem with that. Last week's text, put it all away. But to be fully holy is not to just put off, but it is to put on. And central, Paul says, to what we put on is love is love. It's the centerpiece of all that we put on. We are very much 1 Corinthians 13 kinds of Christians. If you have all this stuff and if you put away all this stuff, but you don't have love, it just really doesn't matter because the central piece of the holy love life is the reflection of the holy love of God to others. 
And so we reflect that together. And, and I love, as the text goes on, Paul says, we not only reflect that, but we reflect that together. And, and it's hard, so we need to worship together. And, and we need to sing together. We need to pray together. We need to hold each other accountable together. This is something we have to do in community. And as we, as we do that, we do that not as cranky, negative people, but as people full of gratitude for what this life in Christ has meant to us, and to us as a people, and means to the redemption of the whole world. And so we do that with praise and gratitude and thanksgiving for all that Christ has done. And now I'm going to tell you a second secret. Don't tell anybody. But we kind of end the text. If you have your Bible still open, we kind of stop reading at verse 17. Now there's more of Colossians to come. Chapter 4 is mostly... Really nice to talk to you. Thanks for getting my letter. See you soon. Um, but it's interesting, the next part of Colossians 3 actually doesn't show up in the lectionary, which I know that may sound complicated, but what that means is the folks who put the lectionary together thought it'd probably be best if we just skipped this part. <laughs> and so let me talk to you about why we tend to skip this part. For Paul goes on to say, this life in Christ, this holy life that takes off something and puts on something else, it actually needs to be lived out in really day-to-day -day life. And so let me give some advice to wives, and let me give some advice to husbands, and let me give some advice to children, and let me give some advice to parents, and let me give some advice, and here's some of the problematic part, let me give advice to slaves, and let me give advice to masters. Now, part of the reason why we tend to not read that very often publicly is because part of us is concerned that Paul's addressing of a first century structure, both in the home and in the economy, that we won't be savvy enough to know this, that when Paul is addressing those communities, he's actually placing a seed of subversion in them. For he says to wives, submit to your husbands. That's not all that interesting or radical in the first century. What's crazy is he tells husbands to essentially do the same thing. And not only submit themselves, but be willing to, in a sense, die first. And so the problem is, in our century, is we get a text like that, and inevitably we have a meeting, and I say, well, this is about how we're supposed to mutually love each other and move towards an egalitarian structure of husband and wife together, but inevitably somebody raises their hand and says, yeah, but who gets the last word? <laughs> and the problem is, as soon as you ask the question, who gets the last word, you've failed to understand how Paul is subverting the whole structure. Are you with me? And Paul is addressing slaves. But what's so fascinating about this letter, if you remember a few weeks ago, Paul sends this letter through Tychicus, but also through this person named Onesimus. And likely is carrying not only Colossians, but another book that we have in the New Testament called Philemon. Where Paul is inviting Philemon not just to care and to forgive Onesimus, but actually to now invert the whole relationship they have and treat Onesimus no longer as his slave, but now as his brother. And so reading this, we would say what Paul is doing 
in calling us to mutually care for each other as Christ has cared for us. God is not the God who lords power over us, but God is the God who loves by serving the other. Therefore, if you are in power, let's invert that, which inverts the whole system. Are you following this? And so the problem is, sometimes we're not savvy enough to do that. And so we end up reading this text and reifying the very same structures that Christ in his mercy has been overcoming. That was really good preaching. Thanks, Diane. Thanks, Mom. Um, one other thing I would say about that section is so fascinating that Paul addresses the person who in the first century was seen as subservient to the other. The reason why that's so fascinating is because in ancient literature, usually they're ignored altogether. So part of what I think that says to me is, it says we don't have to wait till we're in charge to live out this life. And I spent the first 10 years of my ministry as a staff member, the last 20 as a senior pastor. I remember the first 10 every once in a while thinking, someday when I'm in charge. And now I have all these people who sit around me thinking, someday when I'm in charge. <laughs> it invites us not to think that someday when we're parents, we can live the holy life at home. It invites us as children to think about what does it mean for me to reflect the holy love of God to my parents and to my siblings. And, and not just invites us to say, what does it mean for us as people with authority to treat with holy love those under our authority, but it even means, when, means that when we're under various forms of authority, that we can be reflections of that love to those in authority. Wow. And it says to us that the holy life is not just esoterical, it's not just something we write about, think about, sing about, it is something that has to be lived in the reality of the day-to-day -day relationships of, of home, of work, of life with neighbor. Perhaps my favorite picture, one of my favorite pictures of the holy life, of this process of sanctification, comes actually from one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Last summer when I was COVID bored, I, I read them again. In the, in the voyage of the Don Treader, which if you haven't read it, C.S. Lewis has these four siblings who end up in Narnia go through the wardrobe. Later in their adventures, the two youngest, uh, Edmund and Lucy, get to go back. But in the voyage of the Don Treader, they go back to Narnia on this ship, the Don Treader. But when they get pulled into Narnia, their cranky cousin Eustace gets pulled in with them. And frankly, he's a jerk. He's negative and cranky and ugly and bitter. They wind up on this island and and Eustace is unhappy being there and all this kind of stuff. And they find this island in which this dragon has lived there and gathered all this treasure, but the dragon has died, but the treasure has remained. Eustace falls asleep on the treasure. He deeply wants all of it. He puts a, a gold bracelet on his arm and it goes all the way up to his bicep. And he falls asleep. And while he's sleeping on the treasure, he imagines himself as a person of power and wealth and has everything. But then he wakes up and the strangest thing has happened. He's become a dragon. And that gold bracelet that brought him such comfort now brings such pain. 
and he can't get it off, and he can't become undragoned till finally Aslan meets him in the middle of the night and takes him, and he takes him to this pool of water, and that's where I want to pick up the story quickly. This is Eustace telling the story. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it, but it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on, when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or, or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that there were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down into the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my legs, so I scratched away for the third time, and I got off a third skin just like the other two, and I stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. And then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, ugh, it hurts like billy-o, but it is fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then I caught hold of me, or then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd, I'd no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. 
dressed you with this pause? Eustace says, well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Here's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis lines. Well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. I love that picture of what Paul is writing in Colossians. It is not our responsibility to take the scales of the old life off. That happens in surrender to Christ and to the purposes of the Spirit. But it is not enough just simply to remove the old scales. The call is to put on the new life of compassion and love and mercy and goodness. I want to say just two quick last things. Sometimes in this particular tradition, we will ask a kind of strange question. Does the undragoning of ourselves happen in an instant? Or does it take a while? The language we sometimes use is, is this whole holiness thing, is it a crisis or is it a process? My answer to that, which is the right one, by the way, is yes. Is yes. That there is a moment in our lives where we offer ourselves fully to the claws of the Spirit. <laughs> to undragon our life. But then it takes a whole lifetime to live into the beauty of that new creation that we keep putting on and putting on and putting on. And the last thing is this. Sometimes we ask this question. We talk about the holy life as a kind of secondness. I think what we mean by that is there are times in our lives, I, I think this was true for me growing up in the church, where if you were to ask me as a child, did I know Christ? The absolute answer to that was yes. Did I invite Christ into my heart? Absolutely yes. H had I been justified, that's the language that we use, is our relationship set right with God? I would have said absolutely yes. But later in life, if you ask me the question, but have I allowed the Spirit of God to de-dragon me <laughs> and to clothe me in the newness of life, the answer to that was no. And there was a kind of secondness that happened for me. Maybe sometimes I joke a thirdness and a 57thness. As the Spirit of God continues to transform me in that way. And I don't know everything about that. I, I do think justification leads us to a life of sanctification. I don't know if you have to wait somewhere in between those two. But I say that to say I think it's very possible 
for there to be people online today or in this room today who if we were to ask you the question, do you know Christ, you would, without even thinking, say yes. But if we were to ask you in the depth of your heart, but have you allowed him to undragon you? (laughs) And maybe if Paul's right, maybe we should ask your spouse or your children or your neighbors. (laughs) If you have allowed him to undragon you, the honest answer would be no. Perhaps today would be a great day, this morning would be a great morning to invite the Spirit of God to begin to peel away the old and to put on the new. And so I know we're running out of time, but this morning, before we pray and sing a closing song, I would love to invite you this morning, if you're online, perhaps you feel that tug. Um, Perhaps the best way to respond this morning is to just type into that chat bar, change me, oh God. Search me, oh God. (laughs) And maybe if you're in the room with us this morning and, and you sense that tug, maybe as I pray this morning, if you would just stand right where you are, I would just love to pray a prayer of blessing upon you. We're going to sing a hymn that says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. There's a verse of it that says, Perfect submission, all is at rest. And perhaps this morning, if you don't know that all is at rest, you'd be willing to stand in response to the call of the Spirit this morning and allow me to pray that prayer of blessing for you. Let's sing that verse together, and I'd invite you to stand if you need to this morning. Perfect submission, All is at rest I and my Savior am happy and blessed Watching and waiting Looking above Filled with His goodness Lost in His love This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my God, I pray uh, today that what Paul hoped for the Colossians would be true for us today. That our life would not be found in rule keeping, in religious self-help methods. Our life would not be tied to the old, but that we would discover life in you. I pray for some here today who feel the tug of your spirit and who know there's just too much of the dragon scales that they carry with them. And maybe it's too hard this morning to begin to let those go. I pray, God, 
that you who began a good work in them would not give up. Open their eyes to the things that bind them. Invite them to allow you to begin to set aside the old. I, I thank you, God, for those who are standing, those who responded online. God bless them. May this moment be a moment of putting away the old, of entering into the new, of opening themselves up, maybe for the first time to your transforming what we often call your sanctifying work in their lives. May you take away the old, but may you put on the new of love and mercy and compassion and gentleness and goodness and self-control. And may they live that life at home and at work and amongst the neighbors that you send them. And God, I thank you for so many in this room for whom you have taken away the scales, but we want to continue to be open to you putting on the new life. Search us, oh God, today. See if there's any dra undragoning left to do. And continue to shape us to be reflections of your son today. And so bless us. Make us a holy people. For this is our story and our song. So shape us in the deepest part of who we are by the blessed assurance of your grace. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand with me? Let's sing it together. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase
your story this morning, say amen. Amen. If you've listened well this morning, the old does not die easily, but thanks be to God, death has been defeated, sin has been defeated, darkness defeated, evil defeated. Put to death the old, but now we get the joy of putting on the new. And so may the God of peace who keeps on dragonizing us, <laughs> may sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us made us his children. He is faithful. And he will not stop until he finishes that work in us. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace. <laughs>